0: Well, I've been thinking about uh, uh, this day for a long time, and what would I say, and what can you say? Listen, being a pastor is uh, like no other job in all the world, and uh, some of the students around here could tell you that uh, when I say that, I I mean it because I've had a lot of different jobs. I've uh, done all kinds of things, from working in a a, uh, Federal Reserve Bank uh, to being a janitor numerous times in my life and a a plumber's helper, which if you know anything about a plumber's helper, that's not the fun job of being the plumber. Uh, And there's all kinds of other things. I've been a a manager and all different stuff, but I want to tell you that there is nothing in the world like being a pastor. In fact, uh, some people uh, talk about, well, what's the hardest job in the world? And whenever that discussion is going on and, and I'm involved with it, Some people will say, well, being the president of a college or being the president of the United States or something like that. And I always say, no, no, the hardest job in the world is actually to be a pastor's wife. Uh, That's the toughest job in the world uh, because she not only has to put up with all the stuff he has to put up with, she's got to put up with him uh, on top of that. But the second hardest job in the world is to be a pastor, okay? And it really is tough. But you know what? The pastor is so strange because you can have the greatest joys possible in this world as a pastor of a local church. But at the same time, you have, can have the deepest sorrows as being a pastor of a local church. And your life is full of all of those things. You're, you're there for so many cool and exciting things and so for so many difficult things and I was thinking about that and I thought back to way back when I was first uh, surrendered to the ministry and was coming up ministry and I began to to remember something that I read and I went looking for it and I, I know I have it on a disc somewhere but I couldn't find it so I went online and I searched because you know AI never lets us down but anyway, no, I, I, it's not AI. I, I searched, and I looked, and actually I found Josh Hunt uh, posted this recently, and he said that he, he heard it about the same time I heard it the first time, uh, and that was in the 1970s. And uh, he heard it from a man named Dr. Howard Giddens, uh, who was a professor who came from at Mercer, and he came to, to uh, Josh's uh, where Josh was at, And he was talking about uh, the ministry, and uh, he described this story. And I found it, and it's the exact same story. I don't believe this is original with Howard Giddens, though. I think it actually predates him a little bit as far as uh, the date of him sharing this. But here's the story, all right? So I want you to listen to this and begin to get a sense of what it means to be a pastor. It says a, a young seminary graduate was seeking uh, to pastor his first church, and, and a public committee requested an interview. And so the student was, uh, got together with the committee. He was all ready for it. He was prepped. He did everything that uh, he knew he should do. And the chairman of the public committee looked at him and said, Son, do you know your Bible? And he said, Yes, I know my Bible. And he said, well, what part do you know the best? And he said, well, probably the New Testament. And he said, well, do you know the stories of the New Testament or the parables of the New Testament? And he said, I know them both. And he said, well, good. Why don't you tell us a parable from the New Testament? And so he did, and this is what he said. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus who went down to Jericho by night, and he fell on stony ground. And the thorns choked him half to death. And he nearly died. Then he said, What shall I do? Then he thought for a moment, and then he said, I know, I will arise and go to my father's house. And so he arose, and he climbed into a sycamore tree. And the next day, Solomon and his wife Gomorrah came by, and they carried them down to the ark for Moses to take care of him. And as he was going through the eastern gate into the ark, He caught his hair by a limb, and he hung there for 40 days and for 40 nights. But afterwards, he hungered. And the ravens came, and they fed him. And the next day, three wise men came, and they carried him down to Nineveh. And when he got down there, he found Delilah sitting on the wall. And he looked up, and he cried, chunk her down, boys. (laughs) And they said, how many times shall we chunk her down? until seven times? And he said, Nay! But until 70 times seven. And so they chunked her down 490 times. And she burst asunder in the midst. And they picked up 12 baskets full of the fragments. (laughs) And then they looked and, and they asked him, Who's wife will she be in the resurrection? The young man sat down. The pulpit committee chairman looked around to the rest of the pulpit committee. He says, folks, I think we ought to call him. He's awful young, but he sure does know his Bible. And so he began to be a pastor. And so as he began to be a pastor, you know what happened then. Uh, He began to learn all the things that he was never thought would ever happen as a pastor. In fact, uh, sometimes, you know, when you've been a pastor why while, you say, you know, they didn't teach me that in Bible school. Uh, they didn't teach me that in my master's program. But then later you start to remember, oh, yeah, I do remember them saying it. It just did not sink in. You know, sometimes that's the case. And sometimes it's stuff they just don't teach you because you have to learn it by doing. And what happens is you begin to learn all of the expectations Of your church of your congregation by the way this is true whether you pastor a church of five or five thousand trust me anywhere in between this actually uh, again I couldn't find it in my files I've got it somewhere uh, probably over at the study but uh, I I found it again online uh, and this time it was posted by another professor actually of a secular school uh, Murray State uh, College and this is what he says churches expect of their pastor are you ready for this He's got 26 things that they expect. Here's the first one. Uh, He preaches exactly 20 minutes, and he follows it with an invitation where everyone is convicted, but nobody is offended. He works from 7 a.m. till 10 p.m. in every type of work, from counseling to custodial service. He's 27 years old, but he has 30 years of preaching experience. He's tall and he's short. He's thin and he's heavy. He's handsome, but not overpowering. One, eye, one, He's got one brown eye and one blue eye just to make everybody happy. Hair, His hair is parted in the middle and is straight on one side, but wavy on the other side. And right in the middle, he's got a bald spot just to reveal his maturity. He's burning a desire. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers, but he spends all of his time with the senior adults. He smiles constantly, but with a straight face, of course, because he's sober and he he wants to have a sense of humor, but not let his sense of humor mess up the seriousness of his work. He invests 25 hours a week in sermon preparation, 20 hours in counseling, count us up, that's 45 so far, 10 hours in meetings, 5 hours in emergencies, 20 hours in visitation and evangelism, Six hours in weddings and funerals, 30 hours in prayer and meditation, 12 hours in letter writing and administration, and of course, 10 hours in creative thinking. He spends five evenings at home with his family, plus he gets a day off and always stops for interruptions no matter what. He's a seminary graduate, but he only uses one-word syllables. One-syllable words. There we go. He makes 15 calls a day. He spends all of his time evangelizing the unchurched. He attends all retreats and, of course, goes to all the youth retreats, too. He's always available in his office. His kids are perfect. His mother is rich. His wife plays the piano. His house is large. His bank account is small. His car is in the shop. And he has paid too much, too little, and he gives it all away. He's talented, gifted, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all, he's humble. That is the expectation of a pastor. And quite frankly, pastors, we want you today just to be able to take a deep breath and say, you know what, today I can just relax. And today I can be among people who understand that God, I'm, I'm a man of God. My family are people who are trying to serve God and love God and love each other in a very difficult time in which we live. And yet I'm trying to be faithful to the Lord. We want you to know we understand that. And we just want to encourage you for a few minutes today. And I thought many places about what what could I bring you from God's Word that would be an encouragement to you. And I want to take you to a very familiar place. I'm not going to teach you anything new today. Probably wouldn't do that anyway because you're always in God's Word studying. But I want to show you something today and remind you of something today that always helps me through the years that I've been a pastor. And now even as I'm a college president and doing interim pastoral work. So I want you to open your Bible to a very familiar passage with me. I want you to open it to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. You know the passage. You can likely quote it out loud. But years ago, I had a friend who told me, you know, one of the things that that I do in my life is I will stop on a regular basis and read through Psalm 23, and I make myself read it rather than quote it so that I have to slow down and think about what it says. So would you carefully listen to every word, or if you can, have your Bible with you, read it with me as I read each word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Forever. Several years ago, I was, uh, when we were getting ready to adopt Ben, I began to write for a lot of different Christian magazines. I was trying to make extra money to be able to adopt Ben. And so we were in that process, and I was writing for a lot of different Christian magazines. And one day I got a phone call from a Christian magazine called Proclaim, it's no longer in existence, but it was a monthly magazine, and they called and said, hey, we've been reading some of your writing, and, and we've listened to some of your sermons, and would you please write a series of, uh, of, of sermon briefs that is geared towards pastors, and yet it was also something that they could then turn around and develop sermons out of that and, and, and move forward. And so I agreed to do it, and and we prayed through that and decided that Psalm 23 was the place I wanted to go. And I did that because this is one of the most beloved Psalms in all the world. In fact, there are people who have never been in church in their life, but on the old westerns they watched, they heard Psalm 23 quoted. They've seen it on movies, they've heard it in different places, and if they go to a funeral, even funerals in the Northeast that may not be in a church, oftentimes they will hear this psalm read or quoted in the process of that service. And so this, this psalm is one of the most beloved psalms because it speaks to all of us in a, in a special way. But as I was doing my work and my research to write those series of four articles, something got my attention that I wanted to share with you today, and that is that in a more deep way for me personally, who as a pastor at that time in New Hampshire, I realized that this psalm, though it speaks to the multitude, really speaks to the pastor in a very unique way. And I think often we or ignore that or miss that because we just know how it is ministers to other people and so we use this psalm to minister to others. But I want to remind you which one of the psalmists wrote this psalm. It was King David. And King David, though he was not a pastor, it was a different time period and the nation of Israel was understood. They were the chosen people of God and the king of Israel was to be God's representative to the people of the land. He was to be the shepherd of Israel. And particularly with David's life, it took on that that, that characteristic because of his childhood, he was a shepherd. So he understood this idea of being a shepherd and being responsible for sheep and taking care of sheep and overseeing sheep and protecting sheep and all of those things. But every one of us know. Every person who has ever served as a pastor for at least a month knows this. That when you are the pastor of the church, there is something that is different about it. There is a loneliness that can be there even though you may be surrounded by people for half of the week. Even if you're surrounded by people every day, there is something that is distinct and different. You feel the weight not only of your own life and the life of your family, but as Paul describes it, the the, the 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 concern for the church weighs on you. You will wake up in the middle of the night concerned for the church body as a whole or for individuals within the church. And that weight wears on you. And very often, though people in a, in a month like this of October where people are trying to show their appreciation to you, I, I don't know about you, but... In my life, when I was a full-time pastor, it seemed like I didn't like October. Because one week, they would, they would thank me and bless me and give me stuff, and the next week, they'd be attacking me, the same people. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I don't get this. You know, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. But it can be in the moment of, of the greatest appreciation that they are giving to you, and yet there's something deep that is like a, a loneliness that is there. And David understood that. I was talking to a businessman yesterday morning in, in Alabama before we uh, flew back. And, and he, he, he's a businessman who has a large business. And, and he actually, while we were meeting, had an emergency come up. And, and it was just, you could see the concern on his face. And, and I just asked if I could pray with him for a minute. And I, I finished praying with him. And I just said, look, I know it's lonely at the top. And, and, and all of this stuff going on in your business, you've got to make the final decision. It's lonely. I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you today. And any time you give me a call. But, but, but part of what helps me to understand is because as a pastor, it can be lonely at the top. And it was for David as king. You think about all the turmoil and, and some of his own cause and some that wasn't. But David understood an important truth. I may be the shepherd of Israel, but the Lord is my shepherd. And pastor, I want to encourage you today that the Lord is your shepherd. You are an under-shepherd, and it's a heavy responsibility. But the Lord is your shepherd. Now, I want us to walk through here, and I'm just... I, don't don't worry, I'm not going to preach the four sermons that I preached, <laughs> yeah, that, that I wrote the, the paper out <laughs> there. Thank you, brother from Dothan. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those times, Dave. That just wasn't exactly the right time. Anyway. <laughs> but I am going to give you some truths that I hope you can grapple with. And we have others in this room that are not pastors, but they'll be future pastors. We have others in this room that won't be pastors, but you'll be serving the Lord in various other ways. And and all of us, this applies to. But pastors specifically, I want you to think of this in the terms like David did, of the Lord being your personal shepherd. And here they are. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I will not want. Or said a better way, the Lord is my shepherd, no need, in a simpler way the Lord is my shepherd, no need. When you say, huh, it's been a while since you pastor, right? You haven't looked at uh, have my checking account. You haven't looked at all the things going on in my life. Well, look at the text with me and let's just see what God's word says. The Lord is my shepherd. And by the way, you see, most translations have that in all caps. That's because that is the, the personal name of God, Yahweh. Or as as, as with the Latin and German influence, Jehovah or Jehovah, okay, Yahweh is my shepherd, the one true God, using the personal name of God because it's a personal issue. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. In other words, I shall not be in need. It doesn't mean that there's that that you have everything that you want in the sense that we use the word want, but it actually means you will not lack anything that you really need. And he says, I will not need. Now, now look how he deals with that. Number one, he deals with us by meeting our bodily needs. He says there, he makes me to lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside the still waters. Now, the imagery is of David the shepherd, not David the king. And he is thinking about what he did for the sheep and how that he would... Take them to green grass that was that, that was that was soft that was easy to lay down on, and it was good for them to eat instead of grass that if they ate it it would make them sick and all of those things. And he's thinking about that, and then he's thinking about how sheep, if they're thirsty, will just. Run into a raging river and be carried off, but how he as a shepherd would carefully take them to a place of, of still waters, of peaceful waters, where they could relax and, and get a drink and, and with, without worry of being swept away. He's saying that, that he is going to meet your bodily needs. Now, pastors, I'm going to tell you something you know, but I want to remind you today that Jesus has promised to meet your physical needs. And He will. Now, He doesn't necessarily meet them like we think, and the way we think, and when we think. And quite frankly, there's been many things I thought I needed until I learned they weren't really a need. You know, if we just stop and and think about the passages that we preach, especially when we go... To the New Testament and we think about Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. We think about some of Jesus' interactions with people he called to follow him and he says listen foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests I don't have anywhere to lay my head come follow me. Whoa. Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with food and clothes be content. Jesus said, the, the birds of the air, the grass of the field, God takes care of them. He feeds the birds. He clothes the grass. Don't you think you're of more value? He will take care of you. He will. Maybe not the way you want, but he'll do it. But he not only meets our physical needs, notice also he meets, he meets the needs of the soul. He says he restores, in verse 3, he restores my soul. (laughs) When I am just totally overwhelmed, I I break out Gaither. I know, I know. Go ahead. Some like him. All the people that sing, some don't. But, hey, I'm wearing a belt buckle. You know I like that kind of music, all right? So, but but one of my favorites, and, and sometimes I'll do this, and I'll just turn it on and I'll sit there and listen to it sitting at the feet of Jesus just sitting at Jesus feet and letting him work in your life and restore your soul he meets the needs of your soul folks we live in a world that looks for everywhere except for God and his word to restore our souls but God and His Word are sufficient to restore our soul. And you know, after all of the other stuff we try, they does not feel it either. But when we come back to God and His Word, we learn that He meets the needs of the soul. He not only meets the needs of the soul, but certainly He meets the needs of the spirit. You, you may be a dichotomist and think they're the same. I happen to be a trichotomist, and I'm preaching, so I'm talking about him separately. <laughs> I'll say amen either way when you preach. But He, he says that the Spirit, he, he, he leads it out. What's the biggest need of the Spirit? It's righteousness. But notice what it says. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Listen, our own righteousness, the Bible tells us, is as filthy rags. The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. And pastor, that means you. And though uh, everybody in the community may expect you to be the most righteous person in and of yourself, and everybody in your church may expect that, and everybody you know may expect that, I want you to know today that the reality is I know what you know. And that is that without Jesus, we are all in trouble. We're all sinners. We all fall short. We, none of us can, can be perfect. None of us can keep all the law all the time. And the Bible is clear. If we are guilty in only one place, we're guilty of the whole law. But praise be to God that the Lord Jesus has provided forgiveness of sin and a relationship. And when we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that the Father justifies us. He declares us as righteous, not because of the things we've done, but because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And by the way, in Colossians, it tells us, as you receive Christ, so walk in Him. We receive Christ by grace through faith. And pastors, even you and I, will only be able to continue in that relationship by grace through faith alone. Trusting His Holy Spirit to fill you and empower you to do what is right. And here He promised David, even in the Old Testament, that the Lord would lead him in the path of righteousness. When when we are surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of His Word And we ask Him to fill us with His Spirit, He does, and His Spirit produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, goodness. Against such there is no law in your life and in mine. He meets the needs no matter what they are. Now I, I know that that's easy to say and it's hard to live. When Cindy and I were pastoring in Londonderry, New Hampshire, we started a church in Londonderry, and if anybody knows anything about Londonderry. It's one of the more expensive places to live in New Hampshire. And we could not afford to live in Londonderry. We lived in the next town, we lived in Derry. And when we lived in Derry, it took about 60% of all income I could come up with to live in our apartment. And every year, they would, we lived in a two bedroom apartment, and every year they'd raise the rent. And we were coming up on this on this moment where they were about to raise the rent from 1250 a month to 1550 a month. And my, my total income was under 2000 a month. And we just knew we couldn't do it. And so when we got the notice three months earlier, we prayed about it for about a week. And then I went in and told them we're moving out at the end of our lease. But we didn't know where we were going to go. And we started looking and we started looking. and Finally, we found this, this amazing deal, it seemed, to buy a Condex. And we were all the way through, and we were seven days out from, from closing on that condex, and the deal fell through completely. And we had nowhere to go. We had nowhere to live. I didn't know what we were going to do. It was before Ben. That happened to us one other time, something similar. We spent one night in a truck that, in that time. But I had no idea where we were going to go. I had no idea where we were going to live, where we were going to sleep. But what I knew is God called us to start and pastor a church in Londonderry, New Hampshire. And it made no sense how we were going to even make it. But I trusted God, and I, I just kept, every day, we, we pray, Lord... We got just less than a week give us a place. We came down to the last day, and we still had no place. We, we had put all of our stuff in storage, and we were we, we, this was our last night to sleep in this room. And the next morning, we woke up, and we loaded the last bit of our stuff and cleaned the apartment and went to work. And about midday, I was thinking, I thought, oh, you know, there's this place called the Sardo Center in Manchester. And we use it to house mission teams. It's, it's an old, really rough place. And we hadn't used it the last two summers because it was so bad and needed and so needed repair that um, we quit using it. But it was owned by the Catholic Church. And I thought, I wonder if they'd let us stay there for a while. And I called them up. And I said, I, w- hey, this was Mark. I used to house Mission. Oh, yeah, we remember. So listen, my, my wife and I had a house deal fall through. We have nowhere to stay. Can we just, is it possible that we could come stay in the Sardo Center? And I said, yes. And we went in. There was this one little room. It was in August. It was hot. There was no air conditioning. It's a tiny room. There were bugs everywhere. It was gross. And we went to sleep had no idea, but we knew that our God would not fail us, no matter what we slept in. And the next day, we got up, ran through the water because it was too cold to really take a good shower, and we went to work, and mid-afternoon, somebody called me and says, hey, I've got a apartment over my garage you can come live in it rent free until you can find a new place God took care of our needs not the way I wanted not what I wanted but he took care of our needs and pastor I just want to remind you I don't know what need you're carrying right now you may not even know how you're going to take another step but God will meet your bodily needs he will meet your soul needs and he will meet your the needs of your spirit The Lord is your shepherd, no need. The Lord is your shepherd, no fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over very quickly, I want you to understand that when we say no fear, it's not because we're pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and saying, "Yeah, come on," because that doesn't work. It works for a short time, but then the fear overwhelms you. Pastor, you can fool everybody to say that, and everybody think you are fearless. But the fact is, as you know, that just like the song we sing, "Fighting's within and fear, or, or fighting's without and fears within," we live them. Some of them are real fears really in danger. And some of them are smoke screens. The enemy's putting thoughts of, well, what if this happens? Well, what if this happens? Well, this, what if this person's doing this to you? And what if this person's doing this to you? And it's all this stuff that overwhelms you. But you do not have to live in fear because the Lord is your shepherd. You say, well, how do I deal with it? Well, it's very clear. There's four things he does. It's his presence. He says, I am with you. David says, I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because you were with me. David walked through the valley of shadow of death his entire life. From the time of being a teenager who faced down a lion and a bear by himself to protect his sheep, to Goliath, to Saul, to his own son Absalom, to all of his enemies, he lived in constant challenge, but he knew the Lord was with him. Not only the Lord's presence, but also we find, he says, that the Lord's provision of His rod and His staff. He protects us. The rod and staff not only protects us from enemies, but it protects us from ourselves. That staff will grab a sheep and pull him back from a ledge or from a raging river. The rod sometimes was used to get the sheep's attention, but they were also both used to fend off the bears and the lions. And the enemies who would hurt them. And the Lord will protect you. The Lord will provide for you. What a beautiful word picture in verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Picture being on a battlefield. Surrounded by your enemies. And there's a banquet table in here. Just kick them back having a good cup of coffee. (laughs) That's what he does for us. By the way, pastors... Everybody says, if you, if you serve in the Northeast, you're on the front lines. I've come to disagree with that. We're behind enemy lines. We're surrounded by the enemy. And he works against us all the time. And while people have worked this month hopefully trying to appreciate you, there have been the, the people that, that follow the enemy who have been praying for your destruction. And that's what happens around us. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And in the presence of our enemies, he can give you so much peace that you can sit down and have a nice meal and a good cup of coffee afterwards. And then, not, not only that, but he says he, he, his persistence, the level to which God will go to help you in the midst of your fears is absolutely astounding. Now, notice what he says. It, it almost seems out of, out of place. We're talking about death. We're talking about the shadow of death. We're talking about the rod and the staff and, and, and being in the presence of our enemies and then all of a sudden he says, and you anoint my head with oil. What in the world? That seems kind of out of place, doesn't it? If you've ever read Tim Keller's book, A Shepherd's Look at the Psalm. Philip Keller, sorry, not Tim Keller, Philip Keller. And look at Psalm 23, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. As a shepherd, he describes... What he believed is going on here. You know, what, you know what a shepherd will do for his sheep? You know, sheep will, will take their own life by running off a cliff or into raging water because of gnats. Did you know that? Because gnats will swarm around their head and this is gross, sorry. Guys, student guys, you won't mind, you'll, you'll like this. They, the gnats go up their nose. So you know what a shepherd will do? he'll take and make an oil and he'll take that oil and he'll just rub it all over. And by the way, the word here, anoint, can mean rub. And then he'll take it and he'll get his fingers in it. Now watch, this is the gross part. he stick it up in the nose. How would you like sticking your no- f- fingers up in the sheep's nose? Pastor said, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what our shepherd will do for you. Because, you see, sometimes it's not the bears and the lions and Goliaths. It's all the little gnats that eat at you. But the Lord can even protect you from them. No fear. And finally, no doubt. No doubt. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> When I I was, I'm the youngest of nine kids and been going to church since nine months before I was born, and uh, my parents taught us songs and scripture every day. We were singing songs of praise, and my parents would teach us formally and informally growing up, and uh, so, of course, I knew this before I could read. I could quote this psalm, and uh, I never really fully understood it because my oldest sister had her best friend's name was Shirley. And so I thought, I thought we were singing about her. And I just wondered when we were going to meet goodness and mercy. You know, I, I didn't know. I just thought that was her sisters or something. I didn't know who they were. But, but it's a statement of confidence. And, you know, when you have confidence, it doesn't matter what is against you. You move forward. But confidence is something we seem to have a lack in. And and the problem is we try to treat it wrongly, too, by the way. We, we try to have better self-confidence. Paul said, I put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence isn't in us. Our confidence is in our Lord. Our confidence isn't even in how much faith I have in Him. It's how good He is. So he says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. And, and pastors, you probably already know this, and... And all of our Hebrew students, you better know this, but it means to to follow hard after. It's chasing you down. Now think about who said this. This isn't Solomon, who had everything given to him. This is David, who lived in caves, who was chased out even after he had been king for years. This is a guy who was constantly facing trouble. And yet, in the midst of his trouble, he said, Listen, surely goodness and mercy will follow after me. Why? Because God didn't promise everything in this life will be good. And if somebody tells you he, he did, they're lying to you. Read the scriptures. There's nowhere that it promises you that everything in this life is going to be good if you just trust Jesus. But what it does promise is this, that God will take even the bad things that the world and the enemy mean against you and He will turn them out for His glory and your good. He causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't bring evil into your life. The world does that. The enemy does that. Sometimes we do it to ourselves, but he takes the evil and he turns it into good. And David said, listen, no matter what my circumstances, surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Why? Because God is sending them after me. He's sending his goodness. He's sending his mercy. So what does it tell us? Listen, no doubt we can have confidence in this life and no doubt, no doubt. We can have confidence in eternity, and I not maybe will, not I hope I will, but I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In your most difficult moment, remember this. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next. And this will soon be over. And one day, the trumpet will sound. And I'll rise to be with Him forever. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more sin or even temptation to sin. I'll be with my Lord. Pastor, I want you to be encouraged today. Because I know there are times you feel like you're all alone. And just like Elijah, hiding in a cave, we say, Lord, I'm the only one left. No one left. But I want you to remember something. You're never alone if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And not only pastors, dear, sweet families of pastors. You carry a load that no one knows but you. I am not joking when I say the hardest job is to be the wife of a pastor. I believe that with all my heart. And it's hard on pastors' children. But I want you to know you're never alone. God is with you, He'll never leave you, He'll always be there. Because the Lord is your shepherd. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Pastor, I don't know what burdens you brought with you today, but I want to invite you just right now in the quietness of this moment to take them to the Lord. Just give them to Him. Say, Lord, here it is. Maybe it's a, a need. Maybe it's a fear. But just take it to Jesus. and say, Lord, thank you for being my shepherd. Lord, you know the load gets heavy some days. But thank you for being my shepherd. Lord, I got this big need, and I don't know how it's going to be met. But Lord, thank you that you're going to meet it. Because you are the good shepherd who feeds and leads no matter what. Lord, I don't even know how I'm going to take another step. But Lord, help me to rest in You. Help me to trust You. Remind me often. Remind me, Lord, that I am Your sheep, that You are my shepherd. And for all of us here, that is true of You. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, You don't face anything alone. He is always with you. Lay your burdens before Him. Thank Him for being your shepherd and carrying you through. Father, we praise you today for who you are. God, thank you for reminding us from your word today that we're never alone. Father, thank you for reminding us today that no matter what burdens we carry, no matter what trials we face, no matter what enemies come against us, big or those, those annoying gnats, or all of it at once, thank you for reminding us that you're our shepherd and you'll see us through. We praise you and we thank you today. In Jesus' name, amen.